0: Matthew chapter 24, let's begin reading together at verse 32. No, we, we should be reading at verse 1. Okay, we've got verse 1, but it says 32. That lies. Okay, but, it, but, but the, the text is correct. It's just the reference is not correct. So just pretend that says 1 through 3, okay? Here we go. Let's read. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Lord, open our hearts, I pray, that we may hear and receive your word with gladness, that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. And especially, I pray, for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to your side, I pray. Don't let one of them be lost. I pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Humanity has always had an interest and a fascination with the future. There are all kinds of so-called clairvoyants and soothsayers and prognosticators and astrologists and crystal ball gazers and tea leaf readers, each of them pretending to be able to forecast what is going to take place next. Over the years, if you've paid any attention at all, what you've discovered is that with all the hype surrounding their predictions, the truth is they rarely get it right. When you come to God's Word, however, the Bible you find that it has a lot to say about the future. God has not left us wondering about the outcome of our individual lives or the outcome of our planet or this entire universe. Instead, He's given some very clear information about how all this is going to turn out. Perhaps the greatest chapter concerning the end times is the chapter from which we, we read the text for the message today Matthew chapter 24. In this chapter, Jesus himself is the prophet. In what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus identifies the signs that will be the indicators that we are in the time of the end. As we look at this chapter, the first thing I want you to see is the setting for when Jesus gave this prophecy. Just before the beginning of this chapter, Jesus has lamented over the city of Jerusalem. In that lament, in verse 38, he said, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. The house he was talking about is the temple. The temple that was in existence during the time of Jesus had been built by Herod the Great. It was an incredible, marvelous structure, one of the most magnificent buildings that has ever been built. It was the center of Jewish life and worship. Almost as a means of refuting Jesus' words about the temple house being left desolate, in verse 1 of chapter 24, the disciples pointed out to Jesus the magnificent beauty of that temple. Well, in response, Jesus says to them in verse 2 I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. History records. That this prophecy was fulfilled about A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus invaded the city of Jerusalem. You know, normally the Romans would preserve temples and religious houses when they subjugated the people. Titus had actually given orders that the temple was not to be destroyed. Somehow, however, during the battle, probably by just a randomly shot flaming arrow, the temple caught fire. The great cedar beams of the temple began to burn. The roof caved in, the temple collapsed, became a heap of ruins. Then the plunderers and scavengers and thieves began to carry off the treasures of the temple, the gold and the silver vessels that were inside. You'll also remember that the temple was overlaid on the inside with pure gold. After the fire had burned itself out, people came to the ruins and pulled the gold off the walls and Pried the massive stones apart and dug out the gold from between the cracks. When you go to Jerusalem today, you will find that the prophecy of Jesus has been fulfilled. Not one stone is left on top of another. So Jesus gives this prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Then in verse three, the disciples ask a couple of questions, and Jesus spends the rest of the chapter and on into the next chapter answering those questions. Question number one, tell us when will these things happen? Jesus, when is the destruction of the temple going to take place? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That word coming is the word parousia. It's the word that refers to the coming of the Messiah in power and glory. In other words, they were asking When are you going to come and set up your kingdom? When are you going to take over and rule and reign? Connected with that question is their understanding that when Jesus sets up his kingdom, that will occur at the end of the age. Some of your translations will say world, and it's the word from which we get our word, aeon. It isn't talking about the end of the planet or the end of the material world. Instead, it's talking about the age. The the old age is going to end and the new age, the messianic age, will begin. The disciples seem to think that when the temple was destroyed, that would be the time Jesus would set up his throne and establish his kingdom. So, from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, Jesus prophesies. He talks about the signs of the time that will come together and ultimately climax with his coming and the establishment of the new age of his kingdom. The truth of the matter is that Jesus established the new age of his kingdom with his first coming. Those disciples were actually living in the new age of the kingdom of heaven. Don't you remember Jesus kept saying, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom of heaven is here. That kingdom was forever established with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I want to tell you, you and I who are followers of Jesus, we're citizens of that kingdom. All that Jesus talks about as a sign of his kingdom, it's already taken place. At the same time, we find ourselves living in what I call the already not yet. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is established. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that the full expression of the kingdom is not being experienced. There is a resistance force pushing back against the king and the kingdom. It's like there are guerrilla forces in the jungles and they keep firing at us. Because they hadn't figured out that the war is over. And they lost. So these things that Jesus prophesies, first of all, are things that have already happened. And they are also things that are yet to take place. That's the setting of this prophecy of Jesus. And for the rest of the message today, I want to look at the subject of the prophecy. In this chapter, Jesus identifies seven signs that will serve as indicators that the time has arrived for his return in power and glory. So here we go. Sign number one is the deception of counterfeit Christs. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to his disciples, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. In verse 24, Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. One of the indicators that it's getting close to the time of the return of Jesus is that there will be people coming on the scene claiming to be Messiah. Some of them will be able to work miracles, and because people are going to be looking for signs and wonders, they're going to be deceived into thinking that this miracle worker is the Christ. You've got to be careful chasing after signs and wonders. Listen to the warning of 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This, watch this, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming now, and now it is already in the world. You know, when you put the prefix anti in front of the word Christ, it means two things. It means against Christ. It also means instead of Christ. See, the tactic of the spiritual enemy is to deny Christ. Instead, it's to have a counterfeit Christ. It, it is He's, he's not going to fully deny that there is a Christ, but it's to have a counterfeit Christ who is literally against the true Christ, but who will come instead of Christ. Now, that spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. It was present in the time of the New Testament writing, and it has continued right up until this day. You know, everybody's so fixated on who is this big bugaboo person who's going to be the antichrist and we haven't figured out antichrist spirit is already at work and has been at work ever since before the time of jesus there were people claiming to be the messiah before the coming of jesus and there have been many more making that claim since his departure from this earth and occasionally they attract a very large following and sometimes that following seems legitimate because of the miracles that are performed The Bible also teaches that this prophecy is going to climax eventually in one man whom we call the Antichrist who appears in the book of the Revelation. But did you know that in the last 50 years, no fewer than 1,100 people in the world somewhere have professed themselves to be Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The closer we get to the return of the Lord Jesus, the more we're going to see the sign of the deception of counterfeit Christ. Sign number two is the division of continuing conflict. Let's look at verses six and seven. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. (laughs) You know, you would think that in the 2,000 years since the first coming of Jesus, mankind would have solved the problem of war and the world would be a safe place in which to live. Sadly, wars are not diminishing, they are increasing in number and in magnitude. When there isn't an actual armed conflict going on, there's the threat of war looming on the horizon. Instead of coming together and getting along with one another, our world is divided. More wars have been seen by the generation in which we live than any other generation. In addition to territorial disputes of one country against another, there's another kind of war that is creating a division of continuing conflict. That word for nation is the word ethnos. It's the word from which we get our word ethnicity. See, it isn't just one country fighting another, it's one race fighting against another race. On Thursday and Friday of this week, uh, Pastor Jay and I both had the opportunity to be down at our church campground here in Florida, and what we were doing there it was a coming together it was called bridge builders and it was a it was an intentional time of races coming together to build bridges to say we are not divided instead we are one in the bonds of christ and we you know we heard such a great message from Tony Evans, and in that he said, "God is not." It's not that God is colorblind, but he's not blinded by color. And he reminded us out of the scriptures that when we were baptized, when we went into those waters of baptism... We came up out of those waters of baptism, and at that point, we we stopped worrying about our ethnicity. We became a different a different person. We became a Christian. We became a follower of Jesus. So we don't. It's not we don't we don't modify it. Black Christian, white Christian, Hispanic Christian. We we're, we're Christian. But in our world, we haven't figured that out yet because we still have all of this tension going on. And for all the talk of social justice reform, the divide in our world seems to be getting wider and the animosity seems to be getting deeper. It's the division of continuing conflict. Am I doing all right? Y'all okay with this? Okay. Sign number three is the disasters of cataclysmic consequences. In verse 7, Jesus looked down through the telescope of time and warned that in the days preceding his return, there would be famines and earthquakes. You know, in our Western world, we don't think too much about famines when we go to our local supermarket and see the well-stocked shelves and produce bins overflowing with food. (coughs) But all around the world, people are starving because there is widespread famine. There are primarily two reasons for the famine that's going on. First is a production problem. Sometimes the ground doesn't produce because of the weather. Droughts keep the crops from getting sufficient water. Hail destroys tender plants. Flooding washes away topsoil. Fungus, disease, insects eat and destroy the young crop before it can ever ripen and be harvested. In addition, land has been worked so hard for so long that we're told that one quarter of the topsoil is turning sterile or is eroding away. In chapter 6 of the book of the Revelation, the writer talks about famine as one of the judgments announced by the breaking of one of the seals on the scroll. He says that during the time, during that time, a quart of wheat is going to cost a day's wage. I want to tell you right now, there are people all over this world who would gladly give a day's wage for a loaf of bread, but there's no bread to be had. Not only is there a production problem, there's a political problem that causes famine. Food sits on docks and rots because of corrupt governments because of broken distribution networks, because of political posturing. Consequently, the poor and the hurting and the hungry who need the food the most aren't able to get it. Not only did Jesus talk about famine, he talked about pestilence or plagues. In the last century, the world got so excited when the polio vaccine was developed. You know, that news was trumpeted, we had conquered polio. We thought it wonderful when we had learned how to deal with polio and smallpox and and diseases like them. Well, now we've been hit with a host of other things that have us completely baffled. AIDS, SARS, Ebola, COVID. Most recently, there's something called monkeypox that has captured our attention. Famine, plagues, and then Jesus talks about earthquakes. It is isn't uncommon to get news reports, often with video footage of horrible carnage of earthquakes in unusual places that wreak havoc, destroying property, and more importantly, taking innocent lives. Now, I know that it's true. There have always been wars. There's always been famine and plagues and earthquakes. This was going on during the time of Jesus, and it has continued right up until the present day. But Jesus said in verse 8 that the way you would know that these things are signs of the end is that they would be the beginning of birth pangs, you know, when a woman is in labor, I talked about this a little bit last Sunday, she doesn't know if the child is coming with the fifth pain or with the 50th pain or with the 500th pain. All she knows is that the birth pains signal that the end of pregnancy is near and new life is getting ready to come. Jesus said that the wars and the famine and the plagues and the earthquake are the beginning of birth pangs. Pay attention when those pains get more severe. Watch when they get closer together. When that begins to happen, then know that something is about to be born. Sign number four, the defamation of committed Christians. Verse 9, Jesus said, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. When you read the history of the early church, you discover that all but one of the first disciples suffered a martyr's death. The blood of the martyrs of the early church became the seed of the church. And you don't even have to be paying close attention to see the same thing going on today. The persecution is over the name of Jesus. See, this world doesn't mind religion, but it resents the Lord Jesus. They don't mind if you pray. They just say, don't pray in that name. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there are more followers of Jesus who have been put to death for their faith in the last century than all the other centuries combined since the time of Jesus. Right now, as we sit here in our comfortable sanctuary, there are men and women who are literally rotting in prison, and their only crime is that they are followers of Jesus. Pay attention to how followers of Jesus are portrayed in the media. Look at how we are depicted on television programs and in the movies. Listen to how we are maligned in public discourse. There seems to be a concerted effort to cancel our witness and cancel our influence. See, in our world, you can be bigoted against a Bible-believing follower of Jesus and be considered politically correct. There's no tolerance for that kind of prejudice against any other religion, but it is perfectly acceptable when the object of ridicule and public dismissal is those who are followers of Jesus. Because of the defamation in the public arena, Jesus said in verse 10, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. See, because of the defamation, there's going to be desertion from the faith. It's gotten to the point that it is fashionable for some who used to be stalwart in their Christian faith to go through what they are calling a deconstruction of faith. In reality, it's nothing more than picking and choosing the parts they want to follow and discarding the parts that are unappealing and demanding. Pastor, you're doing so well today. I'm so proud. I, I just like what you're doing there, buddy. Look, y'all not going to amen. I'll just amen myself, okay? That's... Sign number five, the distortion of Christless cults. In verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton has pointed out that when a man ceases to believe in the one true God, it doesn't mean that he believes in nothing. It means that he will believe in anything. When Jesus speaks of false prophets, he isn't necessarily talking about a person who is religious. The word means somebody who speaks with authority. It could be a philosopher, could be a college professor, could be a scientist, could be a statesman, could be a popular mu- musician or movie star or charismatic personality could be the CEO of a corporation. These are the people who want to shape and mold society into their way of thinking. They will deceive many. What it really comes down to is nothing more than new age humanism that takes the teaching of all the religions of the world and tries to squeeze them and mold them together into some mystical system. And in this system, God is simply a life force. Man is the measure of all things. All paths lead to the same place. The creature is deified above the creator. That's where we find ourselves, the deception of counterfeit Christ, the division of continuing conflict, the disasters of cataclysmic consequence, the defamation of committed Christians, the distortion of Christless cults, sign number six, the depravity of carnal coldness. In verse 12, Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. You know, today, I've, I feels like I'm, I'm guilty of being kept and obvious in this message. Lawlessness abounds in our world. Can I get a witness from anybody that would say you're right? Bombings, hijackings, terrorism, murders, violence, abuse, the list goes on. We are rushing on our way to anarchy. See, anarchy is when law breaks down in the face of such diversity that government can no longer control behavior and movement of the people. Each person or group of persons acts out of their own self-interest with disregard to the welfare of the whole. See, the Antichrist won't be able to set up his kingdom until a general breakdown of law and order results in prevailing fear. The Antichrist can't garner control of kings and kingdoms and monetary resources if organization and law and order prevail. There must be this, sense of, this general sense of chaos, a general threat to security of huge populations of the earth and an intolerance with anything associated with Jesus Christ. Rising to power for the Antichrist requires a broken system of government that will convince people that one man is capable of bringing peace. And notice what Jesus says. Because lawlessness abounds, most people's love will grow cold. Think about it. When we have a crime wave, we get unfriendly. When crime goes unchecked, we're suspicious When lawlessness abounds, we can't trust anybody, and we can't show hospitality. Let's break it down further. If we see a car stopped on the highway with a flat tire, we say, don't stop. Might be a trick. Come on. Somebody comes and knocks on your door and asks to use a telephone because their car is broken down and their cell phone is out of battery, we refuse to let them in. We harden our hearts against the homeless and the destitute because there are too many scam artists and we don't know who to believe. Because of lawlessness, godly love has been replaced with selfishness and protectionism. Now, nobody wants to hear preaching like that, but I'm already this far into it, so I'll just go on with sign number seven. And That is the discharge of Christ's commission. In verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Sure, there are going to be terribly tragic things happening before the return of Jesus, but there's also going to be something incredibly powerful as well. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is going to be proclaimed to all the world. Notice he didn't say it would be preached to every person, but to all the world and to every nation. This is the age in which we're living right now. Every day the word of God is going out literally to the ends of the earth. The signs of the time are all around us. They're like birth pains. They are increasing in frequency and in intensity. Something new is about to be born. Everything is lining up to indicate that we are indeed living in the season in which to expect the return of the Lord Jesus. Now. There's a reason I believe the Lord has me preaching this message and this series of messages. I'm not trying to save civilization from wreckage. That isn't my job, nor is it the job of the church. Instead, I'm trying to save people from the wreckage of civilization. The reason I'm preaching this kind of message isn't to try and scare you. It isn't even because you requested messages on this theme. And I'm preaching this message to make you aware of just how close we are to the coming of the Lord. And I'm preaching this message to tell you that now, today, is the day to surrender your heart to Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't, don't wait for a more convenient time. There will never be a better time than right now. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin so you wouldn't have to pay it. Jesus rose again to demonstrate that he has the power to save you and to keep you from the wrath that is coming to this earth. I'm preaching this message to try and get you prepared for what lies ahead so it won't take you by surprise and so your faith won't fail. And I'm preaching this message to try and get you ready for the return of the Lord. If you're not ready to meet Jesus, if you're not saved, if you haven't, surrendered your life to him if you're not living your life in agreement with his will under his lordship this is your time right now jesus will save you if you'll trust him i'm not talking about some mere intellectual belief i'm talking about a heart that trusts in the completed work of jesus as your only hope of salvation i'm going to ask you all to bow with me for a moment I want to lead you in a prayer, and, and I want to invite you to make this prayer your prayer. In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lead it and ask you to, to pray it after me. Almighty God, I'm a sinner, and my sin deserves judgment. But I need and want mercy. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin on the cross. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that God raised you from the dead. Right now, this moment, I receive you as my Lord, my Savior, and my God. Come into my heart. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me. Save me, Lord Jesus. I don't look for a sign. I don't ask for a feeling. I stand on the promise of your word that if I ask, you will hear and you will forgive my sin and make me part of your forever family. I claim you now. As my Lord and my Savior. And because you are my Savior. I will not be ashamed of you. Because you died for me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I want to. I just want to tell you praying that prayer after me does not save you. It just becomes a repetition of a prayer behind somebody else. Just saying the words doesn't do it. What does it is when your heart is tuned toward Him and is turned toward Him. It doesn't have to be those words. All those words are is just a kind of way of helping articulate what ought to be going on in our heart. It's a way of jump starting. But, it, but what, where it really takes root is when you have a change of mind and a change of heart that says, I'll surrender my life to Jesus. I'm not going to go my way anymore. I'm going to give up my way and I'm gonna put my trust in him and go his way. And when you do that, whether it's off of a prayer like that or not, all it can, I mean, it can be something as simple as just saying, I'm yours, Jesus, and you're mine. That's right. That's all it takes. If you'll do that, he will save you. He will give you an assurance of an eternity that is secure in him, but also of the help that you need right now. See, serving Jesus isn't just for the sweet by and by. It's for the nasty here and now. doesn't mean you're not going to have any trouble. Doesn't mean you're not going to have any problems. It just means that you won't have to face them all alone. Somebody is with you. Someone stronger who is a real help to you. That's what that means. Stand with me. My time is up. Time has passed up. We had extra stuff going on today. Thank you for being here. I want to tell you, if you have made that choice in your heart to say today, I'm going to surrender to Jesus. Whether it's the first time you've ever done that or it's the 50th time or whatever. I don't know how many times i prayed prayers like that before, how many times i prayed prayers like that before it really took. You know, every time we had a revival and they'd give an invitation, I was down in the altar praying. Somewhere along the line, it took. You know? So, whether it was your first time or your 50th time, but if you said, Today, I'm turning my life to Jesus. On your way out, if you'll stop at the information desk, there's a book I want to give you that'll help get you started in your walk with the Lord. Talk to you about next steps that need to be taken in serving Him. It's the greatest journey you'll ever go on. Thanks for coming today. Let's make our declaration.